across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies. My wife's cakes are selling up hotcakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? <laughs> Good afternoon, welcome to Flavour with Matt Bentman, Sue Bailey and me, Alan Alder. And thanks to Ollie Slack for Sports Special. Today on Flavour, many local restaurants have made the switch to deliveries and collections, but how's it going and can they keep going? And on the subject of deliveries, we talk with the local company that's taking on the multinational delivery firms and doing very well. We return to the Parent Olive in Hildersham to find out what a rural pub restaurant is doing to survive. There are increased fears over the possible reduction in the standards of imported foods. We find out what's going on and how we can influence the government's decisions. The foraging chef Steve Thompson is back and we go June foraging with him. And throughout the programme we'll be bringing news of food and drink in and around Cambridge. Still no signs of restaurants reopening, except maybe al fresco for those that can. So in the meantime, many are delivering or are open for collections. How are they doing? And even if they could open, would they cope with social distancing? I spoke with Alex Rushmer of Vanderlyle and Scott Holden of Scott's All Day, both in Mill Road. Alex first. It's an incredibly precarious time for, for the entire hospitality industry. Small independent restaurants are possibly marginally better placed. We have an element of flexibility in what we do as a, as a small restaurant, but a socially distanced restaurant, not only does it not appear to be financially viable and, and practical, from a, from a hospitality perspective, that's not the experience that I want to share with, with my customers. Um, I, I can't imagine it being a pleasant experience going out to eat, the possibility of having to take temperature checks from, from customers when they enter the restaurant, seating them socially distanced either one or, or, or potentially two metres uh, with perspex or glass screens between the tables. Everything that, that we do at Vanderlyle and everything that, that small independent restaurants that I know and love work towards is about creating a hospitable, enjoyable environment in which to in which to sit and relax and but i don't know if yet there is a there is an appetite amongst the dining public to to return to to restaurants and spend anything up to three hours in a in a, in a dining room scott has a slightly different context um well luckily we have quite a big space in the restaurant and i feel that with a meter we will be able to make it work and get enough tables in there. The two metre rule, even for a restaurant of our size, would make it very, very difficult. I, I just don't know if it would have the same feel and atmosphere that that we want when people come in. You know, we're a very busy, lively place to go and have brunch and pizza and 
Right now, many restaurants and cafes are doing collections or deliveries. How important is this likely to be in the future? And does it mean menus have had to change? It's becoming a fundamental aspect of our business now. Um, we've actually managed to add some more dishes to make it a little bit more family friendly. Um, we've gone down. We've gotten a really fantastic chef who worked in Philadelphia in, a, in an Italian restaurant for a number of years, and so he's brought some of that to the the menu. So we've got some pasta dishes and some gnocchi dishes, which you know are very good at transporting. I mean, pizza is the the original delivery. So luckily, you know that was that's very easy to do. Um, we've continued to do brunch by delivery. We've taken a couple of the things off that we thought would, wouldn't travel so well, but the majority we've managed to adapt, and we're just kind of running, running on as much as we can, so that everyone still has the same experience at home that they would if they were eating with us. Yeah. Well, I was wondering about brunch. I mean, do things like eggs travel okay? Well, we've, we're not doing poached eggs, and we are frying eggs on both sides because just to kind of give it that extra level of security. Try doing poached eggs the first weekend, we got a little bit of feedback that the inside of the box was a bit of a massacre. <laughs> so um, we have stopped doing that. It's just fried eggs. But the feedback has been been very positive. I've seen some photos of people getting their brunch and it all seems to be holding up together. So that can only be good. We, we knew very early on that there was no point even even trying to recreate what Bandalao does as a restaurant um, as a as a takeaway offering. So initially we uh, we turned to comfort food. Uh, we were offering uh, a, a vegetable lasagna was our first uh, was our first uh, dish that we did for for takeaway. Um, we've we've sort of increased the complexity of what we do as we've got used to the way the kitchen now works and the way that the rhythms of the of the week work and now that we know what it's like to cook for nearly 400 people a week instead of 100 people a week um, which was a huge huge change for us yeah, our, our menu offering previously was, was, was five courses plus three nibbles at the start of dinner and a couple of nibbles at the end of dinner and we're talking about a menu that some days potentially had over 100 elements um, so we've had to strip that right down um, to, to ensure that we can offer something that um, that is that is enjoyable to eat at home and what we think represents really good value for money. Delivery companies cost money, though. Luckily, we, we were already signed up to the big Deliveroo and Uber Eats, um, you know, platforms, and that has worked very well for us. But you know, the fee that they charge is extremely large it's 35 percent on each order when factoring the ingredient cost and the labor cost it doesn't really leave you much left um luckily there has been a new company on the scene very recently called foodstuff which is a cambridge-based delivery um app it's a very good deal for the restaurants we pay a subscription and in return we get a hundred percent of the profits and another additional cost is packaging. Alex Rushmer again. The amount of packaging that we have to buy and the amount of packaging that we get through on a, on a weekly basis is, is considerable. So that is an extra added cost that we, that we didn't envisage. 
Extra costs from deliveries and packaging, drink sales provide a big proportion of profits, but Scott's All Day is not benefiting much from that. Well, you can serve drinks through delivery and just and just eat, um, and Uber Eats. Obviously, you know, it's the occasional um, can of beer rather than, you know, numerous rounds. There's not much we can do, it's just, it's just the revenue stream that's disappeared, really. And part of what we've become quite well known for over the last year uh, was our non-alcoholic drinks pairings. So Sam, who's our, who's our uh, general manager and, and bar whiz, has been working on these for the last, last few weeks. And we finally managed to launch them last week. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, really pleased that we've been able to do so and, and thrilled by, by how positive the, the uptake in it has been. So the big question... Are they surviving? Things are, things are working out. We're, we're, we're surviving. We're keeping our head above water. And we know that we're in an extremely fortunate position in comparison to an awful lot of people who have been stuck inside. We've, we've, been, able to, we've been able to go to work, do what I love doing. And I've been able to, on the days when I do the deliveries, I've been able to interact with people who I'd normally interact with uh, in, inside of the restaurant. So, you know, things haven't been, things haven't been too bad for us. When are they likely to reopen? Yeah, I mean, we don't think that's going to happen for a long time. We're planning a couple of different um, ways to help make more money when we do reopen. We're trying to convert the front of the shop, one of the windows, into a takeaway hatch, um, mainly so that when people are sitting down in the restaurant, I don't think that people are going to want to come and queue for takeaway coffees in the middle of the restaurant. So we're trying to think of ways What's the future of the restaurant business? Restaurants have had a tough time over the last few years, um, and margins have been margins have been squeezed from, um, from from every direction. So, I wouldn't be surprised if there is a, a fairly significant realignment when restaurants finally do reopen, and, and 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 I can see prices going up pretty much across the board, right from right from fast casual to to the top end. Um, Uh, help weather some of those those costs. The, the industry is disproportionately 
provide a, a, a fundamental aspect of the community um, and, and to start losing restaurants at this stage after such a, a significant amount of hard work over the last 20 years in, in improving the, the British uh, dining out culture and, um, and restaurant scene, I think it would be an absolute tragedy. And there's been some, some really lovely, really lovely pieces from, from national food writers, in particular um, Marina O'Loughlin, Grace Dent, and uh, Jay Rayner, about how important restaurants are. And, and people saying that I didn't realise how much I missed the dining out experience until it was taken away from me. I think uh, I think we need some we need some guidance from the government. We need financial support from the government, and we need some concrete guidelines about when and how it will be possible for the restaurant industry to start reopening. That was Cambridge restaurateur Alex Rushmer, and before then, Scott Holden, both managing to hold out and both wanting to return to normal. Some news now. The Cambridge Fruit Company, which supplied corporate offices in Cambridge before the pandemic, has begun delivering to the public. They've now increased their pick-and-mix boxes by offering choices from more Cambridge independents, including Fitzbillies, with their Chelsea buns and sourdough breads, and the Norfolk Street Bakery. Their site is cambridgefruitcompany.com. Both Fitzbillies branches are now open for takeaway coffees, Chelsea buns and other delights. And Hot Numbers in Trumpington Street is also now open. And the Garden Kitchen has reopened at the Botanic Garden, with takeaways available from the terrace. In that last interview, Scott Holden mentioned the local delivery company Foodstuff. Alan interviewed Toby, who, along with James, set it up. The sound quality on this isn't great, but it does improve and is worth sticking with. Toby, you've set up a a delivery service and there's already quite a few very big names like, well, Deliveroo and Uber Eats, for example. So it sounds like a very brave venture. What made you do it? Ah, well, James and I have been working in kind of food tech for a little while now. Uh, we've also got a great love for kind of independent food. I mean, if you love food, I think you definitely. And I think being exposed to the food market, we realised there's a bit of a revolution going on. So, you know, as you say, delivery Uber Eats, these guys have kind of paved the way. Uh, but what we very quickly realised was that, you know, it wasn't really working for independent businesses. Um, and I think being budding entrepreneurs, we wanted to fix that problem. Um, we were really keen just to kind of solve this problem and work with independent businesses in local areas and people who are kind of quality conscious. Yeah, well, but why why wouldn't people go with the big names? Yeah, well, first of all, I'd like to point out that we're never going to ask for exclusivity. We're, we, we don't want to kind of turn off the taps of other options of revenue. We're here to help and add an option. And obviously, one day we want to drive enough traffic that means they never have to use these other options. But uh, there are three main things that people find problematic with Deliveroo and others. First one being that, you know, they charge 35%, which means after they've built the product, it doesn't leave them a huge amount. And then once they're on the platform, it's a hugely saturated platform, meaning that there are lots of other options and maybe conversion can be a little bit lower. Um, And the algorithms on these platforms benefit big chains. So they end up paying 35%, the big chains actually pay less. So Deliveroo actually end up taking money from smaller businesses and then funding ads that make sure purchasing is converted on the bigger brands. And then thirdly, a lot of independent brands don't even use Deliveroo Breeds, just be purely in fear of damaging their own brand. You know, you, you, these guys are hugely proud in building these artisan products. And they don't want to be selling these products next to a Big Mac. <laughs> yes, good good point. Okay. So what's so you you charge a lot less then, presumably? 
moment, we're actually operating on a break-even pricing model. We're not interested in making money. Obviously, with COVID happening, we just saw it as an opportunity to connect independent businesses with the community, people who wanted good food. And um, yeah, we're very happy to be transparent. We're only charging 30 quid a month for our restaurants at the moment. We know that isn't sustainable. Um, but in the future, once they reopen, we're going to slowly introduce a slightly more sustaining pricing model so that um, we can stick around. Because I think what started as a bit of a passion project has turned into something that we're hugely excited about and we don't want to stop. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and we've been super honest with all of our vendors that saying that one day our base subscription will change. Um, but our aim is that that subscription means they'll sort of break even in their first week. So the remaining three weeks of that month is all just pure 100% revenue to them. Right. I mean, you mentioned COVID-19, but your business actually started last year, didn't it? No, no. Well, we've been testing the product and things like that. So we started building it about nine months ago. So um, this is very much a new venture that hasn't started. It literally started or went live as a result of COVID, actually. So um, James and I, as I said, were in food tech and kind of working for other uh, companies and saw there was a problem for independence online. So we thought we would solve that. And being quarantined in Cambridge, it made it very easy for us to launch here. Yeah, as soon as they were legally allowed to kind of get cracking with delivery, we just said, right, guys, do you need a hand? Uh, I mean, I heard that you were originally planning to, to do this in Soho. Is that not right? Yeah, so that was very much a test weekend. So we never managed to do that purely because we ended up being quarantined in Cambridge. So in April, we were going to shoot this live in, in uh, Soho. Uh, and it was just designed for a one weekend thing with like five to ten vendors that were signed on. Uh, and it was purely just to choose, kind of basically prove that the product worked so we could prove a bit of traction and then take any of the feedback that we received from the consumer and the product uh, and the vendor even, and then, yeah, go from there. And we didn't have a huge amount of planning of where we were going to launch, um, but if Soho worked, I think, yeah, that would have been an obvious choice just because we were based down in London before COVID sort of kicked off. Yeah, so you've got connections with Cambridge anyway. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we both know Cambridge very well. James is sort of Cambridge through and through. He's brought up here. Uh, and I've got family surrounding, so in and out. But yeah, we know Cambridge super well, so it was kind of convenient that we could launch here. Uh, but also, I mean, look at the foodie scene. It's unbelievable, the independence. Um, the quality bar is so high. And also what we found is that the end consumer are just so supportive of independent businesses. You know, they saw an opportunity to help them survive and they've jumped on it. And it's all done by bicycle, isn't it? All on bicycle, yeah. So that was a big thing for us, and I think... Um, in current climate, we're seeing that all businesses are having to work more environmentally friendly, otherwise they will lose loyalty to their customers. But aside from kind of business decisions, it was something that we wanted to do from the start, which is to kick off in the most kind of ethical way possible. But, you know, even if you know Cambridge well, I mean, I know Cambridge pretty well, but there's places that I can't find. You know, if you go to sort of a, a block of uh, of flats, say, which yeah. are in different yeah, yeah. buildings, you know, finding out where flat number 404 is can be a nightmare. So have you had have you had any nightmares? <laughs> there's definitely been a few, yeah. I think particularly that we don't have the kind of resources, or, you know, funding like Deliveroo, we don't have the technology, but we've kind of had our Bluetooth earphones in with a bit of audio that tells us where we're going and then when we get close, we might have to call the customer and say, hey guys, we're looking for you. And they've always been awesome at giving us those last little bit of direction. But um, I have to say, there haven't been too many nightmares, but yeah, we always hand, hold our hands up and give them a call if we do get it. And when all of this COVID is over, you know, I'd, who knows when that will be, uh, you know, are you planning to continue? Yes, please, Cambridge. If 
you'd like us to continue <laughs> helping out, we'd absolutely love to stay. Um, so we've got kind of 11 vendors that are live now with nine waiting to get on with every plan to stick around. Um, so yeah, absolutely 100% um, keen to, to keep going. That's, a, that's fantastic. That's a really good number in a very short time, isn't it? Yeah, and I think what we're really keen on sticking with is actually tapping at 20 vendors because, you know, we've got so much to learn, we've got so much to do, and we want 20 vendors all overachieving uh, before we start to bring on any others or look to, to go to new locations. So for us, we've got 20 vendors who are signed and they're coming on two each weekend as we go. And, um, yeah, before we accept any more, we want to keep the volume low, the quality high, so that the end consumer can basically trust that everything on our home screen that's available to them at that time going to be awesome it's just down to what they feel like at that time rather than having that problematic oh my goodness there's a hundred vendors and i don't know what's good and what's bad so people can go to your site then to order yeah absolutely so we've built our own web app um so it's at foodstuff.co.uk and that's foodstuff with three f's it's three f's yes yeah exactly (laughs) so we've chucked a fork on the end make it a little bit more foodie but the truth is we couldn't afford the uh, domain for two f's <laughs> uh, so in true in true startup fashion we just chucked an f on to solve a problem <laughs> um so um but yeah you can just visit our our website chuck your postcode in and then within a couple of clicks you'll have one of us guys coming over to deliver well that's that's fantastic yeah and um the first i knew of you was when jack's gelato started delivering through you it was was jack the first Jack was, a, yeah, he was probably our first and also was fantastic at introducing us to other vendors. And, you know, he, he has awesome products. And I think his referral carried a lot of weight in the local food scene. So we were able to be introduced to quite a few people off, 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 the, off Jack coming on board, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, 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 that's great to hear. Now, when I saw your most recent photo of your, your sort of deliverers, they were, they were all blokes or, or women not interested in this. We've got plenty of girls, actually. I think we've got a pretty... Uh, there are more boys, to be fair, but just to, just so you guys know, they're all volunteers at the moment because we're not monetizing. So these are just people who are literally getting in touch over Instagram to say, yeah, we'd love to help, and all we're doing is giving them some food and a few, few beers after work. So, um, yeah, there's probably five or six girls as well that are helping us out, and we've probably got 10 to 15 boys, yeah. Right. So it's a really good little community, then. Oh, it's amazing. And if you wanted some gossip, um, there's yeah. actually a romance among the uh, ranks already. <laughs> uh, so I feel like not only am I uh, setting up a food company with James, but we're also matchmakers. <laughs> very, ple- very pleased to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd love to just give all of the guys on board a shout-out, just so um, the, the peeps who are listening can kind of know who's on board, if that's cool. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so you mentioned Jacks. We've also got Steak and Honor, Urban Larder, Amelie, Pint Shop, Tom's Cakes, Vegan Vice Club, Olive Grove, Scottsdale Bay, and Nana Mexico. And then next weekend, we've got coming, or this week rather, we've got Garden Kitchen as well as Espresso Library. That's good. That's, that's very impressive, right? Okay. Yeah. Great to talk to you, Toby. One day maybe we will meet. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Alan. And that was Toby from Foodstuff. Do check out their website. The, uh, the prices that the big established deliverers charge is incredible, yet Deliveroo is said to be struggling financially. Uh, if you've read John Harris's article about them in The Guardian of the 9th of October 2018, uh, you won't be shedding any tears, and not for Uber either. More news now. Midsummer House is looking for front-of-house staff. It's four days a week, 
Michelin experience is not essential. To apply for a position, email restaurant.manager at midsummerhouse.co.uk. From Tuesday the 23rd of June, Burwash Larder in Barton will be extending its opening hours from 9.30 to 4pm. That's Tuesdays to Saturdays. And Shelford Deli is doing cheese boards to take away for Father's Day, which is tomorrow, of course, Sunday. Contact them if you're interested. They have a large size with five to six cheeses, weighing in at about 1.5 kilograms, and that's for $49.99. They also do a smaller one with four cheeses, weighing in at about one kilogram for $39.99. Both come with crackers and tasting notes. Vanderlyle in Mill Road is about to start trialling picnics in their menu offerings. Just go to exploretalk.com forward slash Vanderlyle to make a reservation. Earlier in the programme, we found out about how two Cambridge restaurants are coping with the lockdown. But what are rural places where there isn't the density of population to operate a delivery or collection service? I spoke with Gael Lecoli from the Parent Olive in Hildersham. Yeah, we closed about three months ago uh, due to the coronavirus, and then so we had to do something different and to keep us afloat. And, but we had a long time plan to open a cafe and a farm shop, so I think it was a good opportunity to actually finish it. We have a fairly uh, big area at the back, bigger garden, so, so we, uh, we arranged the big garden to be more affixed. We, we do cafes and sandwiches, paninis and things like that. And uh, so it's very well received uh, because we are a small, quiet village. And uh, so, so we put it, pretty much put it on the spot. We've been so close to Cambridge, we're about maybe, let's say, eight to ten minutes uh, from Cambridge, city centre. So, I mean, it's, it's a really nice drive, too, from the city centre to here. And, I mean, you feel like you to go outside in the, in the country, in the small village is really lovely. And, uh, and I think the, the, the locals here are really, really pleased. I mean, at the moment, we're very restricted of what we can do. So we're waiting until the 4th of July which uh, is like the date where everybody can actually open patios and things like that. So it's definitely going to be amazing. I was discussing with friends that we are thinking of walking from Cambridge to yeah. you in Hildersham, just specifically as a, a good location to meet yeah. up. Yeah. Well, plus here in Hildersham, we, we, we're in the centre of the bicycle uh, world. So there's all those roads um, uh, lead to Cambridge, all the back roads. Uh, so there's a lot of bicycle going through here. And a lot of walk, walking here uh, near Hildersham. So there's a lot of trails, uh, walking path to, to go to uh, near, nearby villages. So it's definitely a good spot to be because we're in the middle of all that. And so that's the reason why I think this farm shop and cafe is doing really so well because we're right there. And there's a park right on the front of our place where people can take their coffee there and enjoy a cup of coffee and, and a sandwich. So it's really, 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 really good. As much as I can, I farm local. So, I mean, all the produce is uh, coming from local source, mostly from uh, Linton and Hildesham. All the meat is local as well. Uh, everything is either from Newmarket or Southern Walden. And so basically, yeah, we, we, as much as we can, this is what we try to do is just like fresh, fresh product every single day. Uh, we're very lucky to have a um, dairy company like right next to us. So we're getting our fresh uh, milk and everything delivered in the morning. And then uh, we're also baking our own bread here. So we have fresh bread. So, yeah, we try, we try to be as, as, uh, as local and fresh as possible. <laughs> and, I mean, that's what a farm shop is about, really. We, we try to be true to what it is. 
So if people want to find out a little bit more, what are your websites and social media? Uh, the pear, pear and olive, uh, com, And we do have a new website, which is our pantry website. And uh, you can go to www.thepantryfarmshop.co.uk. Uh, you can also do some pre-ordering, sandwiches, uh, pick up, uh, things like that. We'll see you soon. Gail Leckerlee from the Pear and Olive there, and it does sound like a nice place to go. Homemade bread, too. I'm free. I'm free. This is where we would normally bring you details of free food available now in and around Cambridge. But because we're pre-recorded, uh, we can only tell you what's recently been available and remind you that the information comes from the Olio app, which is free to download. The Olio app is still operating, and here's some examples of what's been available recently. Carlo on Coleridge Road was giving away four 500ml packs of bechamel sauce. Mafalda on Mill Road near Hot Numbers had some organic vegetable stock cubes, as well as organic mushroom stock cubes and some turmeric to give away. Whilst food hero Jane, based in the city centre, was in charge of giving away a slew of Pret-a-Manger items including chicken Caesar baguettes, tuna baguettes, mozzarella and tomato croissants, prosciutto ham baguettes, egg and bacon baguettes, avocado olive and tomato baguettes, and hot macaroni cheeses, one with prosciutto ham and two others with kale and cauliflower, as well as, for those with a sweet tooth, double choc chip and normal choc chip cookies, chocolate croissants, almond croissants, all of these items were given away free. You simply open the Olio app and you see what's available near you. And you message these people your interest in picking up the items. It's as simple as that. And in Jane's case, she is identified as a food hero on Olio. Now, a food hero is a volunteer from the community, our community, who agrees to distribute large quantities of free food on behalf of places such as Pret-a-Manger. So you can see, it's a really wonderful service, Olio, and it is well worth keeping your eye on. We covered the threat to food standards from a trade deal with the USA at the beginning of February here on Flavour. But things are moving on and it's time to look at it again. It's a complicated story involving an agriculture bill, a trade bill and a food standards bill. Alex Rushmer is very concerned about it, as is the MP for Cambridge, Daniel Zeichner, who wound up the debate for the opposition on the agriculture bill in the House of Commons. I spoke with them both about their concerns and about what we can all do to maintain high standards of food in this country. First, here's Alex Rushmer from Vanderlyle in Mill Road. Uh, we could be eating chlorine washed chicken without knowing it. And I know chlorine washed chicken is the real, it's the real headline grabber. It's not the chlorine that, that, that concerns me. We eat chlorine washed salad. We all go to, or a huge number of us go swimming in the swimming pool. Um, exposure to chlorine is it's not something that Daniel Seichner agrees. Obviously, there is, there is an argument. Some of the people who are uh, who are on the other side of this debate say that um, that the, the standards are, are are fine in America, and there's a big argument, public health argument, over um, the levels of food poisoning and infection. And we took evidence on that before the the committee had looked at the bill. But what is in little doubt is the stocking densities of of poultry, in particular in America, are much higher. There is no federal. Uh, 
chlorine is actually used to cover up the poor standards in which the animals are kept during their lifetime. Um, so basically, uh, I think people are right to be anxious and concerned about this. Frankly, it will probably be all part of the f very frenzied final negotiations that go on at the end of this year, both with the European Union and with the United States of America. But it's, it's a very troubling and unsettling time, particularly for people um, in the farming sector who are facing a major change in the way that agriculture is supported with no clarity about the future. And I'm hugely, hugely concerned that there will be uh, a backdoor reduction in UK food standards that will allow poor quality, low welfare meat in particular, to be imported in the UK as part of the US-UK trade deal. But it, eventually it will disproportionately affect lower-income households. Lower-income households already in this country disproportionately affected by lifestyle diseases, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and other lifestyle diseases, which is another of America's great exports to the world uh, as, part of, as part of the great American diet, increased sugar consumption, poor quality meat, and, and, and meat consumption is too high as it is. We all know this. There's also the environmental impact to consider, again, disproportionately affecting lower-income households. Well, you might be thinking, well... We'll just look at the label, and if it's from America, we won't buy it. But also, there's a, there's a labelling issue. As part of the trade negotiations, US trade negotiators are insistent that US imported foodstuffs are not labelled in the UK. So the, the, there is the, the real possibility that food items and, uh, and foods and uh, animal products could enter the UK food system that do not currently meet UK food standards, and we could be eating them, and we would not have a clue that we were doing so. I wondered if UK farmers might drop their standards as a result. There is a concern that it will have an impact on food standards in the UK as UK farmers try to try to compete with uh, with huge amounts of, of cheap cheap chicken, cheap beef, cheap pork, genetically modified crops coming coming into the UK. We're all end users of a very, very long food chain. And as a nation, we've spent 20, 25 years creating a food system that actually we should be, we should be pretty proud of. We grow, we, we make, we produce, and we cook some truly world-class food and have done over the last 25 years. And that is, we've been able to do so because, because of an increase in, in farming standards, because of an increase in animal welfare, because of increase in food standards across the board, largely as a, as a result of, of the BSE crisis of the, of, the, of the 1990s and then the mouth crisis of the early 2000s as well. But if farmers are competing on cost and cost only, then, then you know, I, I, I think it's, it's potentially a huge step backwards for, for the British farming, agriculture and food industry. And some have suggested we don't grow our own food at all. Daniel Seichner again. Why can't we just import it, like Singapore 
And I think that led the Daily Mail in particular to question kind of what planet some um, the advisers advising the government were on, because quite clearly we are a country that w- would want to continue producing our food, and it's a key part of our, our, our rural landscape, our rural environment. And also, uh, to be a secure country in the future in a troubled world, you would not want to be entirely dependent upon imported food. But isn't cheap food desirable? Alex Rushman. The idea that there's only one country in the world that spends a smaller proportion of, of their national income on food uh, as, a, as a proportion of their income, the amount they spend on food, and that's the United States of America. We spend a very, very small proportion of our income on food. Uh, there is plentiful cheap food in this country. We, uh, we don't produce enough food in this country to be self-sufficient. That is something that we know, and that's something that concerns me going forward with, with regards to trade deals with both the, the EU and the United States. This is all going through Parliament. I asked Daniel Zeichner if he thinks there's a possibility of it being voted down. I think it's highly likely it will be amended by the Lords, but that's not going to happen probably till October. Um, it will then come back to the Commons and there the, the, will be a decision in the, in the House of Commons as to whether to reverse those changes or not. Now, a government with a majority of 80, you would expect to be able to carry that. But I detect that a lot of Conservative MPs are very nervous and at the... Um, at the, the final stage in the House of Commons a few weeks ago, the amendment that Labour supported attracted just over 20 Conservative rebels. So we're in, we're in the territory of being able to defeat them, but it, that, it's quite a stretch. But what can be done? I urge anybody who's listening that has concerns about UK food standards to, if they haven't already done so, to write to their MP. There is an online petition that currently has almost a million signatures to ensure that there is no compromise on UK food standards as part of the US-UK trade deal. I would urge anybody who's listening that is concerned about that to sign that petition. I believe that was the NFU um, that put that, put that forward. And it's easy enough to find, it's easy enough to find online through Twitter. I've tweeted about it. I will tweet about it again. And just make some noise about it. I'm and Daniel Zeichner agrees. Yes, I mean, certainly sign the petition. Um, certainly write to your, to your local MP, um, because particularly for Conservative MPs, this is a kind of touchstone issue. Uh, they've always claimed to speak for rural areas. Well, food obviously applies to everybody, not just people in rural areas. But uh, for them, it, it's, a, it's a pretty important issue. And a lot of farmers I know in particular are feeling pretty betrayed because they feel they were promised um, something on this in the Conservative manifesto. And they're now no longer convinced that promise is going to be maintained. So write, write to MPs, also take part in, obviously in the, the COVID period it's harder in terms of demonstrations and so on, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if we don't see some quite major protests in the autumn and hopefully we'll be in a position where those can be physically supported. And I'm always very happy to receive people's letters and communication. If it, even if it's an issue where, where, people, where people know where I stand, it's still very reassuring to have lots of people um, confirming that that's the position that people in Cambridge would like me to take. You can rest assured uh, we are very, very determined to make sure that we find a way through this which does not compromise our environmental health standards um, or public health standards and food standards because I think for a lot of people this is a really, really important issue. And Alex Rushmer will be active too. under the 
Alex Rushmer of Vandalile there, and earlier in that report was Daniel Zeichner, MP for Cambridge. And a reminder that the petition they both mentioned is organised by the NFU, the National Farmers Union, and you can find it easily online. If you want to write to your MP, most MPs have their own website with details of how to contact them. Some more food and drink news now. Development is continuing apace at Thrive, the plant-based cafe and bistro which was gearing up to open in the old CB2 cafe location before the lockdown stopped everything. Now you can follow the progress of James and his Thrive team at thrivecambridge.com. They've already revealed a little of their upcoming menu, with fish and chips served on a Friday and the fish represented by noi-wrapped battered tofu. The hatches of many street food vans will be going up as Food Park returns to CB1 in Station Road on Fridays, now with extended hours from 11.30 till 2.30. There will be contactless payment only, and there will be a sanitizer at every truck, and the two-metre social distancing rule will be in place. And that music normally signals time for the latest food tweets from the city for today, Saturday. But today, since flavour is pre-recorded during the lockdown, we'll use it for a recent tweet instead. Bushelbox Farm Shop in Willingham has ideas for Father's Day with a range of chocolate, chutneys, marmalades, coffees, savoury snacks and cards. And they're open till 4pm today, Saturday, but closed on Sundays. This week, I ventured out to meet the foraging chef, Steve Thompson. Social distancing was maintained at all times. It's now June and we're outside and we can hear the birds and it's been beautiful weather. So what would you suggest we are looking for at the moment? Yeah, it's been absolutely gorgeous. We've had the real heat and the wet, so that's brought a lot of things out. First thing we're going to talk about is a plant that really likes to dry. So you're looking along the edge of fields and... uh, Real, real dry areas basically and it's chamomile so chamomile obviously really easily identifiable by its smell but what you're looking for in the first place is almost like a daisy style plant with the flowers except the petals being white still instead of going up go down so it kind of looks like a backwards daisy you often see these white daisy type flowers growing by the verges because they're not mowing them so much anymore is that chamomile or is that something else it could be or the other thing it could be is the oxide daisies at the moment but size is a key one there oxide daisies are a lot bigger almost like double the size of a two pound coin whereas chamomile you're looking at somewhere like around the five pence to ten pence somewhere in between their sort of size for flowers um and again the smell is just key you've got that lovely appley almost unique smell that chamomile has Oh yes, um, there's. You can make lawns out of chamomile, can't you? When you crush them by, st- you, know, you stand on them and crush the scent. Yeah, you can do. Yeah, oh, there's a ridiculous amount of plants they use for that. I think, isn't it? And yeah, they're beautiful, and the smell of them is just absolutely amazing. I think it's up to like a hundred plants they use per square meter. That's quite a lot. No, I, th- I think to find them in the wild is much more sensible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, uses for them. I mean. If you want to come see one of the uses that we do, find one of my cake stalls, if you check out on our page. We do a wonderful chamomile milk cake where we literally take the flowers as they are and infuse them in the milk and then use that to make the cake. And that works beautifully. But obviously, classic way of using them is just dry them out for tea. Mm, chamomile tea, of course, yeah. Mm. It's got lovely, it's a lovely drink to have before bedtime. It's said to have really good, like, uh, relaxation, anti-anxiety, helps you sleep, that kind of properties to it. 
Um, there's loads of things really. Your imagination can take you. Infused in uh, gins and vodkas is lovely as well. That's really, really good. And you can make cordials out of it. It depends how much you like the flavour of chamomile to how strong and how prominent a flavour you want it to be in dishes. Mm. Okay, that sounds really interesting. No, I've, I took note of your cordial suggestions from the last time we had the recording I've been making lots of elderflower cordials so oh, it's yes. lovely isn't it isn't it good and also <laughs> making some elderflower champagne so that's that's going on nicely and it's not exploded thank goodness so. excellent <laughs> um, another plant quite similar often called wild chamomile but I think it's a bit of a confusing name common names often are but uh, pineapple weed okay it grows really dry conditions again you will often find it growing with chamomile it looks very similar to chamomile except it won't have any white petals okay. just the bud oh yes i think i've seen it yeah uh, the leaves are, are again sort of fairly frondy looking aren't yes, they, they yes. are, yeah exactly that um a smell again is a key identification if you take the bud and tear it in half and smell it it does smell like pineapple it's got chamomile qualities to it so that kind of almost appleiness with it but pineapple i get is the strongest flavor and I mean, when it's really young, you can pick it and eat it in salads. I don't find it's best like that. I think it's an infusing plant. So you can dry it out, make teas out of it again, infuse it, panna cottas, jellies, things like that, vodkas, gins. Or you can do it from fresh as well. It has a slightly different flavour, whether it's fresh or dried. But yeah, infusing. Um, there's recipes on my page using it with red clover where we make a nice tea out of it, which is absolutely gorgeous, and that's a real must-try. You might well have it growing in like cracks in your pavement and cracks in your driveway and things like that. I mean, obviously, check out if it's somewhere where it's going to have exhaust fumes on, don't use it. But if it's cracks in your driveway where you don't park your car, why not? You were saying about your page, this is the Foraging Chef page? Yeah, if you go on Facebook, it's uh, Foraging Chef. You type that in. Or you can go on Instagram and find Chef Steve Thompson. And it's got similar content on both. It's got all the recipes up and everything like that. And we're just working on a book at the moment, so... This is all your recipes, is Yes, it, it will yeah. be, yeah. Mm-hmm. We're going to do a bit of uh, a bit of the chefier stuff and more of the home cooking stuff as well and a bit of preservation in the book. So, Because I think a lot of picking wild food is how to preserve it. It's going back to the whole seasonality thing and the larder, isn't it? Exactly that. So I'm hoping to have something ready for next year. I think that's going to be a realistic time. What else can you see that you might be thinking of making use of? So at the moment, the other things to look for is the trees. Find an ash tree at this time of year. You're looking for the seed pods that hang down. They almost look like little hands that hang down, but there's millions of things. The ash keys, yes, exactly this. And they are wonderful pickled. But what you want to do is make sure they're young. So when you find the keys, you pick one off and try and snap it. If it snaps, then you're good to go. If it starts just bending and stuff, then it's probably a bit old. The other trick is you want it when the seed's really small and young. So if you take it and hold it up to the light, you should be able to see through. And if the seed's starting to fill the pod, then it's probably a bit far gone. They've got a lovely, almost, it's quite a unique, hard to describe flavour, but I suppose you're, going to, you're getting into the territory of kind of olivey flavours once you've finished pickling them, I think, which is probably the best way to describe them. Really good with cheese boards and things like that. But you need to make sure that, so a quick, simple way to how to do it is put them in cold water, bring it up to the boil, leave it to boil for five or so minutes, strain it off, repeat that again. Cold water, bring it up to boil, five or so minutes, strain it off, and then leave them to cool, and then pour your pickling liquid over because otherwise they've got a really intense bitterness that you want to get off them. Okay, so boil three times, two times, two times, three, really, yeah, yeah two to three times. times. You want to get rid of that real mm. intense bitterness, and then mm. you're left with a lovely kind of, as I say, almost olivey flavour. And what sort of pickling liquid would you use? It depends, really. I mean, if you're making your own vinegars, then the world's your oyster, but if, if not, things like cider vinegar will work really well with it. 
and the spices really is up to you I mean what you think is you want to leave them for three months in the vinegar before they're edible so look three months ahead you're coming into the autumn so you're really going to want more autumnal starting to be winter spices so probably go with your cloves your anise fennel seeds cinnamons things like that that are the more warming spices although at this time of year you wouldn't fancy that think about when you're going to be eating it of course and then keep it in something like a kilner jar put it in the back of the cupboard and then get it out nearer to christmas yeah you want to give it at least three months but the longer the better with anything like that really so it doesn't matter if you you know six months time you think i've forgotten about my uh, pickled ash keys they'll still be fine exactly that yeah exactly um the next thing we'll talk about is quite similar it's just starting to come in now um and it's the green walnuts also ready for pickling if the squirrels haven't got there first because our squirrels are quite keen on our walnuts well what you want is basically you need like a needle or something like that with you when you go in and take the green nut and if you push the needle through completely cleanly then it's fine for pickling if you feel any shell it's gone too far and the squirrels should you should be all right for the green ones before the squirrels get there because they like it when the nuts formed Uh, so your wet walnuts later in the year yeah, going to be fighting the squirrels and they're a nightmare mm. but these ones you should just about be all right and they're just starting to come in the ones where my pouches aren't quite ready yet but i reckon another week or so and they're really i mean pickled walnuts are one of the very best things oh, i love pickled walnuts I really just about do. used last year's up and i can't wait for the next ones to be ready pickled walnuts use exactly the same pickling theory for those i tend to brine them first so I tend to make up a solution to so say one litre of water, 200 grams of salt, 200 grams of sugar, and leave them in that for a couple of weeks first. So I prick them first, sorry, and then put them in that brine, leave them for a couple of weeks in the brine, and then make a pickling liquor after that and leave them for a good... I normally leave them for a good six months, really. I mean, you, if you're unsure, check, cut one in half. If it's nice and black, then you should be good to should go. Be right. And anything else you'd... Are you suggesting tree-wise? Yeah, the last one from the trees at the moment is the lime trees or linden. And the blossoms are just starting to come out. Yes, you can smell them, can't you? It's that most amazing honey-scented... Exactly that, and that's what their flavour is. It's honey-scented, yeah. And they can be used in similar ways to anything you're going to infuse. You could dry them out and bake with them in cakes and breads, or you can use them to infuse. I mean, yeah, they're fantastic, again, in vodkas and gins and things like that, but also anything you want to infuse it in, custards, mm. stuff like that. They're just absolutely wonderful. So you said put it in vodka or gin, so that's... What would you do? How would you do that? Because I'm intrigued. I normally take a bottle of gin and probably, like... Well, it depends on the ingredient, but with, like, lime blossoms, you probably want, in a 70-centilitre bottle, three inches at the bottom full of lime blossoms. Okay. Probably the same again with sugar, and then put the gin back in the bottle. As simple as that. Every day, just give it a quick turn for about 10 days until the sugar's dissolved completely and then just leave it to sit for probably another 10 days and then strain it off and it's ready to go. Adjust sugar levels for what you want. You don't have to put sugar in, but the way we used to make them before, we put sugar in because then they're much more like a gin liqueur then and you can drink them neat and that's how I prefer my alcohol anyway. So we always put a bit of sugar in, have them like a liqueur, drink them all winter, much like the beech leaf noyale that we've discussed before and... Um, the last thing we'll talk about today is it's a family that have to be done with caution but it's well worth knowing well worth learning but put the time in and it's the carrot family again or apiacea um, and we're going to talk about common hogweed seeds the seeds are just starting so if you go if you go down one virgin they'll still be in flower you go down the next one and the seeds will be out it's it's just about having a walk and you'll find them um, i'm not going to go into identification on them at the moment that's 
do your research, have a look through. The seeds are absolutely wonderful. So once you've found them at the moment, at this time of the year, they're still nice and green. They're kind of a cross between, they're kind of cardamony and kind of orange peely. It's probably the best way to describe the flavours. And they're a wonderful spice. So you could dry them out, grind them up and use them as a spice for cooking. Or again, you can use them to infuse in things. Use them as you would use cardamom. I mean, for me, making hogweed seed ice cream is one of the best things going. So they're just, they're just a must, but it's a family that needs to be studied before you dive straight in. If you're ever going to be starting up any courses or doing more restaurant work, I'm sure we at Flav will be the first to know. We'll announce it on here and uh, keep your eyes peeled on mine and the Plough and Shepworth pages to see what we're going to do after we all restart. Indeed, it'll be very interesting times, yes. Thank you, Sue. Okay, and speak to you next month. Yeah, see you next month. Cheers. The foraging chef there, and you can visit his stall on Sundays from 10.30 on the corner of Coton Road and Burnt Close in Grantchester, and at the same time in Caldercott. Details are on his Facebook page. And that's all the time we have for today. Don't forget we are here on Alternate Saturdays at 1, repeated on Sundays at 2, and then podcast early in the following week. Coming up on Cambridge 105 Radio today, after the news at 2, is Women Making Waves, and at 3 o'clock, Behind the Bike Shed, in which Phil Minot discusses the outcome of the County Council's vote on COVID-19 temporary cycling measures. Also on the programme are sporting cyclists about to get back on their bikes, And this week's guest is someone who used to keep newts in a House of Commons washroom. I wonder who that could possibly be. But that's all from us. We'll be back on the 4th of July. But until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. 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 Goodbye.